I want to talk to you this morning out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And for those of you who are visiting, we are currently studying through the Gospels, what's known as a harmony of the Gospels, and we're walking with Jesus in a chronological order. And the most recent controversies he's had to confront is, are the Sabbath controversies, and we want to talk a little bit more about that this morning. I think you would agree with me that human beings have multitudes of needs. Would you agree? We have needs for water, air, food, love, affection, people to think kindly of us. We have needs for jobs and money, and we go on and on and on. But I want to suggest to you, what is it, what, what, what would be the, the most important, the most supreme need that people would have, do you think? What is it? I hear a lot of mumbling out there. People, just people. What, what, what is it that people really have need of most significantly? How about salvation? Would you agree with me that every person needs salvation? We need to be saved. Now, prior to becoming a Christian, you probably didn't think that. But now, after the fact, you become a Christian, your eyes are open, and you go, I get it, I see, now I'm glad I'm saved. How many would agree with me? You see, it makes sense to you now. But every person needs salvation. Every person needs, I think, a true worship experience. A sense of the awe of God. They, they just, God is real to them. How many have, how many have stood on the, like the, the rim of the Grand Canyon or you've, you've seen some incredible sight of nature that's just affected you so profoundly, all you can do is go, wow, or some such expression. That's the essence of worship. You're in awe. It takes your breath away. You go, wow. And I believe every person needs a true worship experience where they encounter God such that that encounter takes their breath away and they know that God is real. It's not just an intellectual exercise. I think every person needs a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence in their life and his direction moment by moment. Paul talks to us in the, in the New Testament about Walking after the Spirit. And the idea is it's a moment-by-moment walk. We need a sense of the presence of the Spirit of God in our life and his direction. I think every person needs to know how to live in a world that, that pulls us away from God. How, how do I live in this world? How do I live in this world that pulls me toward every worldly thing that's imaginable? And the bottom line is how, how or where do we get these needs substantially addressed and or met? What do you think? Some people say go to church. That's our, that's our logical conclusion. When I got saved uh, back in 1977, I remember uh, all, the, all the guys that I knew and all my friends, the word went around. 
Up, oh, Zach got religion. And that really is the way most people would look at it. Well, you're going to church, you get religion. You get religion. And yet, I want to submit to you that religion very often gets in the way of us knowing God and experiencing God. We can get very religious, can't we? With all of our rules and regulations, all of our customs and traditions and rituals. Pretty soon they all seem more important than the very essential spiritual realities we really do need. Can't do this, can't do that, can't be this, can't be that. Nothing, I think, should keep us from meeting these needs as best we can in each other's lives, in the lives of those of our families, neighbors, friends, people who, who are yet, yet to be saved. And it's only through meeting these needs, it's the only way that the heart of man can be reached and, I think, satisfied. Our hearts are restless, said one old saint, until they rest in thee. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that you might have religion and have it to the full. Did he say that? No, he said what? I came that you might have life and have it to the full. I I think there's a a stark contrast between just being religious and having life. And it's it's life that we hunger for. It's life that we long for. It's life that God gives. Genuine, genuine life. And by putting people first and their needs, their real needs first and comprehending those, that's the only way that we can stop the loss of people who are literally being lost by the droves. Simply putting people first. Simply loving them ministering to them. As we have so often heard, and this is a common refrain among church leaders and pastors, that people come in the front door and they slip out the back door. I remember at a pastor's conference about 10, 15 years ago, I was talking with Jack Hayford, who was pastoring at the time at Church on the Way out in the valley, and I asked Jack, I said, because we, we'd have, we have our own back door. People come in the front and go out the back. And it's a mystery. So I asked him, I said, trying to discover the secret to closing the back door. And I suppose that Jack was so, so successful in pastoring and had such a great large church that he, he discovered the secret. So I said, Jack, I said, do you have, do you have a, a back door? He knew exactly what I was saying. And he laughed hysterically. And he said, do we have a back door? We have the biggest back door in the San Fernando Valley. More people come out our back door, they come in the front door, and they go right out the back door. The question is, why? Why? And you could posit lots of different answers, but I suggest, and, 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 and he and I talked about this, and we think very simply that people don't get their needs met. And that part of that need is knowing where they fit also. It's not just getting stuff. It's knowing I have a need to know where I fit. Does that make sense? I need to know that I can be part. I think it's fair to say that Christians today, churches today, truly, truly need to go before the Lord and 
search our hearts and ask, ask these questions. Are we really reaching that many people for Christ? I suspect not. Are people really accepting Jesus through our example, through our testimonies, and through our ministries? Are they really accepting Jesus? Or simply just becoming more religious people? There's a difference. And the question is, if, if we answer no to those, that that's not happening, if not, why not? When Jesus said the harvest is still plentiful. In other words, we have no shortage of people who need to hear the gospel, no shortage of people who need to know Jesus. Could it be that so many Christians and so many churches are so religious that they put their religion before meeting genuinely the needs of people? That's always a challenge to us as Christians. It's a challenge to us as a congregation to make sure that we are putting the needs of people, we are addressing those spiritual needs especially before being religious. The Jewish nation had been held together, interestingly, by their religious beliefs. Through the centuries, if you read the history of Israel, you read the Old Testament, you see that uh, they had been conquered by army after army after army. They had been carried off into captivity. They had been scattered all over the world at the time in the ancient Near East. Even in Jesus' day, Israel was enslaved by Rome. And their religion played a key role in their lives. Their religion was the binding force that kept the Jews together. In particular, their belief that God had called them to be a distinctive people who worship the one and only true God. Their rules governing the Sabbath, governing the temple, their rules governing intermarriage, worship, cleansing, what foods they could eat, what foods they could not eat, all those rules, their beliefs and such, protected them from alien beliefs, protected them from being absorbed and swallowed up by other people's. Daniel, you read the book of Daniel, and they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel was very particular, and those Jews were very particular, to maintain their identity by keeping their rules and their rituals and their traditions. Their religion was what maintained their distinctiveness as a people and as a nation. And the Jewish leaders knew and understood this. They knew that their religion was the binding force that held that nation together. And therefore they would oppose, and they would oppose vigorously, anyone or anything that threatened to break or to weaken the laws of their nation and their religion. Now, the religious leaders of Israel were people of deep, deep conviction. They were strong in their beliefs. They became steeped in their traditions. And to break any law, to break any rule governing Belief or practice would be to them a serious, serious offense. Because it would teach, in effect, loose behavior. Things would become a little sloppy if people started breaking the rules and breaking their traditions. And loose behavior, once it spread enough, would weaken the religion and weaken the nation. This is the reason 
primarily that Jesus was viewed as committing great offenses by breaking what had become their religious traditions and rules, and more particularly, the Sabbath observance and the traditions about the Sabbath. In the minds of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus was weakening their religion and he was also threatening their nation. The religious leaders also, you have to remember, were men of profession. This was their profession. This was their standing. This was their position. They had recognition. They had esteem. They had livelihood. They had security. And anyone who went contrary to what they believed or taught was a threat to all that they had. Every time Jesus broke their religious rules and traditions, he was undermining their very position and their very security. They they allowed religion in its tradition and ritual to become more important than meeting the needs of people, really. The need for God, the need for spiritual, personal, physical health and well-being. God was reaching out to people, but Israel and the Jews and their, through their traditions began to stifle all of that just in the name of preserving their identity. And Jesus Christ, he had come and he knew he had come to liberate people, to set people free from any and all enslaving issues, whether they be religious issues, whether they be physical issues or demonic He addressed all levels of enslavement. His mission was to save people so they could could truly worship God in spirit and in truth. The religious leaders believed they had to oppose Jesus. He was their number one enemy. They had to oppose him because he was a threat to their nation, to their religion, but also he was a threat to their very own personal security and position. And so their attack on Jesus would take two forms. First, they tried to discredit him. They didn't want the crowds to keep following him. So if they could just discredit him. And we see this happening all the time, even in our own culture. If you can discredit somebody, their popularity begins to wane. And so the way they tried to discredit him is is they said, "Well, well, he eats with sinners. He's breaking this tradition, this religious tradition. He doesn't, his followers don't fast like we do. He doesn't participate in the religious traditions. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So on multiple levels, they're seeking to discredit him. However, the crowd still followed him. They couldn't discredit him. And failing to do that, now they're plotting to kill him. That's the second part of their strategy. Now, when we last left Jesus a couple of weeks ago in our study, Pastor Steve was talking with us about Jesus and the Sabbath and Jesus defining the Sabbath and telling the Pharisees that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he also said that God desired mercy, not sacrifice. And that word sacrifice implies not their traditions, not their rules, not their rituals. God desires mercy. 
And there's a huge difference between being religious and being truly spiritual. Because if you're truly spiritual, you're gonna be, your life's going to be marked by mercy and grace, kindness and love. True? So he's in this debate with the Pharisees. Because you see, the Pharisees had in effect made themselves Lord of the Sabbath. They were dictating what rules and such had to be kept and observed on the Sabbath. So without necessarily saying so, they, they had in effect made themselves Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. And he begins to talk to them about the proper, uh, uh, how to properly observe the Sabbath, proper understanding of the Sabbath. So he's debating them and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this episode that we're looking at. We pick the episode up. After he's confronted them, he doesn't even wait for a response. He leaves. Jesus moves away from them and he immediately goes to a synagogue. Now, in our account here, in verse 9 of chapter 12, Matthew says, going from that place, he went into their synagogue. Now, the implication could be that he went into the synagogue where those Pharisees were frequenting. That was their place of, of worship. We don't know for sure, but that it, it's, an, it's, an, it's a thought. Luke, in his account, tells us that on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And again, maybe this was the very synagogue where the Pharisees attended. Now, it's on this occasion where Jesus will give a living illustration of the true meaning of Sabbath observance and his authority over both man and the Sabbath. Now, just read with me this passage, beginning at verse 9, Matthew chapter 12. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And the Pharisees were amazed at this and they fell down and bowed before Jesus and adored him and praised him. <laughs> no, doesn't say that, huh? Does that blow your mind? Does that blow your mind? If you're, in that, if you're in that synagogue, you're in that congregation, and here's a guy with a withered hand, and everybody knows the guy, and Jesus is there. Everybody, everybody, it, it, I mean, you could, cut, you could cut the air with a knife because you, everybody's thinking, what's going to happen here? And Jesus says, stretch forth your hand, and the hand is healed. What would you think? Wow. Wow. Right? You wouldn't think, it's killing. 
I mean, you have to understand where the Pharisees are coming from. They, they, they see him as a real threat to their position. If they let him get a foothold, all hell's going to break loose in their mind in Israel. They've got to stop him. So Matthew tells us a man with a shriveled hand was there in the synagogue. Now the Pharisees, their purpose is to use that man's presence as an occasion to trap Jesus. They're going to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They're going to find a reason to accuse him so they can later kill him. So they pose a question to Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now remember, Jesus had earlier said to them, presuming these are the same Pharisees, that God desires what? Mercy. Would it be merciful to heal this guy? Even on the Sabbath? Sure. So they ask him that question. They completely are unaffected by his statement to them that God desires mercy. And especially, you would think, on the Sabbath would he desire mercy. Their only purpose in listening to anything Jesus said or watching anything that he would do was that they might accuse him. That's their only purpose. They're not there to learn anything. They're not concerned for the truth, but only for a way to dispose of Jesus who dared to violate their sacred traditions and, oh yes, blaspheme God by claiming to be equal with God. The fact that they asked Jesus the question, is it lawful to heal? The fact that they asked him that question, I think indicates that they acknowledge his power to heal. Do you think that the Pharisees knew Jesus could heal? Oh yeah, they'd seen it before. They had heard about it. Testimonies are rampant throughout all of Israel. Jesus went about all over uh, the cities up in Galilee uh, healing people. So it's not like they, they were clueless about this. But the same miraculous signs that would convince hum the humble of Jesus' divinity and his Messiahship, those same miraculous signs confirmed in the proud their unbelief and rejection. His signs, had a, had a, they were like a two-edged sword. They would produce one effect in people who truly were humble and the other effect in people who were truly proud. Which group were the Pharisees in, do you think? The truly proud. You see, they reasoned that if Jesus were truly of God, he would respect their tradition and he would wait until the next day to heal the man, not on the Sabbath. Now, can you imagine, here's the guy in the synagogue. Everybody knows, it, 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 it's kind of like the elephant in the room, right? And so the guy steps up and he asks Jesus for healing. He doesn't do it here in the text, but let's say he does. And Jesus' response would be, no, 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 you have to wait till tomorrow to the Sabbath. We don't heal on today. We don't heal on the Sabbath. Would that be weird? Can you imagine Jesus saying, no, come back tomorrow? No. No. In verse 11, Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own. 
So they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He says to them, well, listen, if any of you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? The question clearly deals with an economic justification for breaking the Sabbath. <laughs> oh, man, you know, we'll, we'll keep the Sabbath, but when it comes to money, we'll, we'll find a way. The point was, any Jew, Jesus is making, any Jew, including a Pharisee, would find some way to rescue his sheep in that situation. Now I want you to notice, the Pharisees don't argue the point with him. They know what he's saying is true. They know that even they, on a Sabbath, if they had a sheep falling, even they would figure out a way to get around the Sabbath law to save that sheep. And then he says that a man is much more valuable than a sheep. Do you see where he's going with this now? No Pharisee would argue with that. If you were to ask a Pharisee, is a, which is more valuable, a man or a sheep? What do you think the Pharisee would say? The man is more valuable than the sheep. He would agree to that. But in practice... They would treat other men with much less respect than they treat the sheep, especially this Jew. You can't heal this guy, Jesus, on the Sabbath, but we'll rescue our sheep from a pit on the Sabbath. By doing that, they're saying, in effect, practically, that the sheep is more valuable than the man. But Jesus says, no, no, a man is more valuable than the sheep. You'll rescue your sheep, but you won't allow this man to be rescued. They're seeking to put him on the horns of a dilemma. He turns it right around and hangs them on the horns of a dilemma. They contemptually, they were, they were contemptuous about how they treated people with regard to their traditions and their rules and their religion. They subjugated human life and welfare quite simply to religious tradition. We don't do that. We don't, we don't help people. We don't do that. One of the, most of you know about the Hindu religion. This is a classic example. And I think one of the obvious tragedies of Hinduism is its disregard for human welfare in the name of human welfare. You know, when you don't look under the, under the, under the skin and, and, and find out what, what do these religions and philosophies stand for, you, you just think, well, they all, they're all just all about love. You ever seen that bumper sticker, coexist? Drives me crazy. I go crazy when I see that thing. I want to stop the driver and say, you do not know what you're talking about. Hinduism expresses a concern for human welfare, but it really doesn't care for humans. Example, a beggar is not given food because it would interfere with his karma and prevent him from suffering his way to the next highest level of existence. A fly is not killed because it is the reincarnation of some unfortunate human being of past ages who's trying to climb that, that ladder of existence. Rats are not killed for the same reason 
And rats are allowed to eat and contaminate food supplies without any interference whatsoever. You do not kill rats. Cows are considered sacred and are given what food is available while human beings are allowed to starve. Why? All in the name of religion, all in the name of religious traditions, all in the name of religious views and understandings. That's a tragedy. And I submit to you that in a similar way, the Pharisees despised other human beings, showing more compassion, Jesus says, for a sheep than for a disabled man who was even a fellow Jew. Now in Mark's account of this event, Mark reports that Jesus asked the Pharisees this question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Mark says, they kept silent. They kept silent. Had they approved of doing good and saving a life, they would have contradicted their tradition. Now, if you were to ask, ask a religious person, is it, is it good to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? We'd say, well, it depends. It depends on what you're going to do. I just want to do good. Was Jesus a man who went about doing good? Yes. So if they approved of doing good, and especially on the Sabbath, they would contradict their tradition. And on the other hand, they obviously would not have advocated doing evil or killing. So they couldn't do either. They couldn't answer him and say, well, it's okay to kill on the Sabbath. (laughs) That's ludicrous. But they couldn't also say, it's okay to do good on the Sabbath, to heal on the Sabbath. So they were trapped. They were trapped in the illogic of their heartless, unscriptural traditions. Their only outward recourse was to keep silent. They couldn't say anything. They knew they were trapped. But Luke tells us in his account, though they outwardly kept silent, Luke says, inwardly, they were furious. Literally, they were filled with rage. And then Jesus answers his own question. He says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And I think the emphasis is on the word is. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now Mark, in his account... Mark says, Jesus looked around at them, presumably the Pharisees, looked around at them with anger and deeply disturbed at their stubborn hearts. So he's surveying the scene. He's looking at these guys. Jesus is experiencing a righteous anger in the face of their unrighteous anger. Picture the scene. Jesus stood there looking around at these religious leaders. There's stone silence in that synagogue. He scans his audience. He's awaiting their answer to his question, which they don't answer. I think he still desired greatly for them to confess 
him as Lord. I think he's still desiring for them to respond in a positive way to him. But there's only silence. Then all of a sudden, verse 13, all of a sudden, Jesus speaks up. He turns to the man, he says, stretch out your hand. Now, it's not in any of the three accounts, but I was thinking about this as I was just studying and meditating and preparing, and the thought occurred to me. When he said, stretch out your hand, I wonder if the man's hand somehow was stretched out toward the Pharisees. Would that be an indictment? Like, Jesus is about to heal him. Stretch out your hand. He stretches it toward the Pharisees, almost expressing, can you help me? Which they, of course, would not. We don't know, but it's an interesting thought. Stretch out your hand. That command. Now, the man's life has to be saved. Now, this is not a, this is not in, in a, in a, in a characteristic way. This is not a life-saving event. But think about this. Most of the people in Israel at that time were the equivalent of what we call blue-collar workers, and they worked with their hands. Tradition suggests that maybe he was a carpenter or a bricklayer, uh, a guy that worked with his hands in building. So he would need both hands to uh, secure his livelihood. Does that make sense? So in, in a sense, it really is a, a, a life-threatening problem. Because if he can't work, he can't eat. If he can't eat, he's going to have some problems. So the man's life has to be saved. His hand has to be rescued. Think about this. And he may never have a chance to stand before Jesus again. What's the point? Now is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow, today. He may never see Jesus again. Jesus, remember, he's going from synagogue to synagogue. He's going from place to place, village to village. He's, he's teaching and ministering. He may never come back. This may be his only chance. Beloved, if we do not help people now while we can, no matter what day, even on a proverbial Sabbath, then we are withholding good and we are doing evil to our neighbor. Today, what has God called me to do today? What need has he presented me with today? What, what do I see today? What have I heard today? What, what can I do today? Not tomorrow, today. Most of us are procrastinators, are we not? Most of us will put off, put off, put off. Eh, it's not that urgent, it's not that urgent, it's not that big a deal. Someone else will have to. No, no, no. If God shows you, do it today. Today is the day. And there are lots and lots of ways for us to go about doing good. Lots and lots of ways for us to help people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We can share the gospel. We can preach at them. But most of the time, most of the time, just showing them kindness and love and in some way trying to meet some need in their life is a tremendous door opener, isn't it? You can visit the lost and the needy. You can pray with your family members who are sick. 
You can feed them. You can just sit with them. You can bring people to church. You can invite them to your small group. You get, there's lots of things. You can help someone who's caught in some unexpected distress. But the point is, is that we reach out and we see people in the midst of need. And we do our very best to try to help them. The bottom line is we only live a short time. We're only here for a little while. And then we have to give an account to God for this life, the time, the days we spent, the resources, the opportunities. We're going to stand before him one day. We give an account. We have only a few short years to be about our father's business. Something to think about. Or do our, our rituals and our rules and regulations get in the way? Our preferences. Look with me once again at verse 14. Notice, please, how the Pharisees use the Sabbath. <laughs> Are they concerned about the Sabbath and the Sabbath observance and that the Sabbath laws not be broken? Yeah, they're very concerned, but look how they use it. What are they, what are they doing on the Sabbath? Plotting to kill Jesus. Plotting to do evil. He's already asked them, is, it, is the Sabbath a day for doing good or doing evil? What are they doing? He's indicting them and they don't even know it. In John's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 44, when, when the Pharisees are objecting to Jesus and they're justifying themselves as being Abraham's children, children of God, Jesus retorts to them and he said, no, 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 you are of your father the devil. He just tells them straight out. And true to the nature of their spiritual father, the devil, they seek now to destroy Jesus. Jesus, who they could not stop, they could not um, subvert, they're going to kill him. And they would no doubt have killed Jesus right there on the spot had they not been afraid of the Roman government because the Roman government would not allow them to implement capital punishment. And also they were afraid of the crowds of people who were following after Jesus. When you read the Gospels, nowhere do you read that the Pharisees were afraid of Jesus. Nowhere. They were afraid of the crowds that followed him because he was so favored. Jesus' enemies were determined to destroy him. The only remaining decision had to do with how they would destroy him. Let me ask you this question. If an objective observer would look at your life, your Christianity, the, the Christianity of, of our church or any other church, an objective observer, would they say that our Christianity, what's characteristic of, of our Christianity, is it, is it more positive or more negative? In other words, are we more concerned with opposing things, opposing certain sins, opposing certain cultural movements, or are we more concerned in advancing the kingdom of God and proclaiming his love for people? Do we tend to be more negative or do we tend to be more positive? Which you think is the more attractive? The more positive. Should we have a positive message? Should we have a positive lifestyle? 
Or should we be all caught up in our rules and our traditions and our rituals and, and, and all that stuff so that we really, really are effective in reaching people for Jesus? I'm going to suggest to you that Christianity is the most positive force to ever hit planet Earth. It's the most positive force. Every culture that's been impacted by, by genuine Christianity, every culture, and this is, a, this is a theme that missionaries are very aware of, that you see redemption, and along with that redemption in the lives of people comes a lift to that culture. People's lives are better. They're a more wholesome culture. The challenge for us is to make sure that we don't let our Christianity degenerate into a negative religion. That's always a challenge because our human nature tends to be mostly negative. We tend to think negative. This is what sin has done to us. But we can't allow our faith to become something negative. The challenge is because we can be very critical, can't we? Very critical. We've got to not let it degenerate. We want our Christianity to be something uplifting, encouraging, unlike the Pharisees. We want to be a people who go about doing what? Good. Because God has done good for us. Amen? Remember that early, the early church was viewed by all the people in their culture. They, they observed those early Christians not as a bunch of negative people. They said, look, look at the love that they have for one another. We want to be part of that. We long for that. And then, of course, Jesus says, I desire what? Mercy. Mercy. Father, thank you. Thank you again that you are merciful God. You're a good God. Thank you for your word that points us towards you. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that you desire mercy. Keep us mindful by your spirit. Open our eyes, give us boldness to minister, to reach out your grace, your goodness to those who desperately need help. We love you this morning, Father. We give you thanks. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment or two. I just want to give an opportunity for those who may not know Jesus Christ to make a statement, a commitment. The Bible tells us that we're sinners. If you were to ask yourself this morning, if you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? Now you may say, well, I don't believe in heaven and hell. Well, just because you don't believe in them doesn't make them any less true. But if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Most people would say, well, I think I'd go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. I do good things. Just like you said this morning. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. As evidence that none of us will get into heaven, you have to ask yourself, examine your life. Have you lied this week? Just simply lied. Have you told a lie? Have you lusted? Have you stolen anything? Have you had hang anger in your heart towards somebody? We go down the list. It's called the Ten Commandments. And if you've broken any one of those commandments, you're guilty. No, matter, no, no amount of good, good deeds can make up for that. The only person who can make up for that is Jesus.
You have to look at your own life. He died on that cross. He took our punishment. He took our sins, our guilt, our griefs, our sorrows, our diseases all upon himself. He was punished for us. And he makes this simple offer. If you put your faith in me and you believe, believe that I am God, you believe that I am the creator, you believe that I am your savior, you believe that I was crucified, I died, I was buried, and I rose on the third day, that I am the Lord, you put your faith in me, I'll save you. It's that simple. It's a free gift. Much as Heather this morning shared with us about that young woman from Cameroon who felt dirty, unworthy, lived in fear. And when she believed in Jesus and she was assured that Jesus set her free, it made all the difference in her life. That could happen for you this morning. I just want us to to pray a short prayer of commitment, but before we do that, I want to know if there's anybody here this morning that is ready to make that prayer. You're ready to make a commitment to Jesus, maybe for the first time in your life, or maybe you've been sitting on the fence for a long, long time, and today is the day. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Today is the day. If that describes you, then while everybody's heads are bowed, you're ready to make a commitment, I just want you to signal me by lifting your hand real high. Get my attention. Pastor, I want to pray. I want to give my life to Jesus this morning. I want my sins forgiven. I want a new life. Anybody at all, just lift your hand right now. Okay, I see that hand way in the back. Okay, anybody else? Just lift your hand right now. Don't wait. It'll take just another second or two. Don't put this off. Today is the day of salvation. Okay, I'm going to ask you, sir, raise your hand way in the back. I'm going to ask you to get out of your chair and come down here in the front, please, and join me in the front. I want to pray with you. Come on down. Still time. Anybody else? God bless you, Jim. God bless you, man. Thank you. God loves you, brother. I'm going to have Bruce take you to the prayer room, okay, for a couple of minutes. Talk with you, okay? Pray with him. All right. God bless you. Amen, church? Amen. As is our custom, I want you to turn to your neighbor and pronounce a blessing on your neighbor in the name of Jesus, knowing and believing that that blessing can make a difference in their life. And then if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss and stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss. <laughs>